This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 28, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In the American West, the right to pull water from a river on your property isn't as intuitive as you might hope, and the rules governing water rights may not lead to as much conservation as we might hope. Reed Watson is president of the Property and Environment Research Center. We discussed some changes that could improve the way American landowners use and conserve water. We spoke in Bozeman, Montana. Describe to me how water rights existed once upon a time in the United States. Well, there's there's actually two types of water rights in the United States. In the in the humid east, there's riparian rights, which basically allows for sharing because there's so much water, there's not really scarcity there. And basically if you have if you own land that abuts a waterway, you can you can use a reasonable amount. That doesn't work out west. We have a lot less water out here. And so rights out here are, are called prior appropriation rights, and they're quantified, and they're ordered in terms of how old they are. So oldest rights get their water first, whereas a right that's established this year in many, many years is not going to get any water at all. And so it's a prior appropriation. It's based on priority rank, and it's very much quantified. It's not a kind of co-equal sharing. Um, out west, the original law was that you had to divert water out of the river, out of the stream, and put it to a statutorily defined beneficial use, which would include livestock, would include irrigation, would include municipal or even urban, or excuse me, industrial use of water. Okay, so and that's on private land, water coming mm-hmm. through your private land. Exactly. And your whatever your rights are and the rank ordering of those rights defines what you can do and in many cases what you must do with in that order, water. In order to maintain that right. So if you don't use it for a, a period of time, there's what's called the use it or lose it provision. So if you go, you know, it depends on the state, but if you go say five years without actually diverting your water, without actually using that water right, it's considered abandoned and somebody else can use it. And so you have this incentive it's actually a disincentive for for conserving water because you got to pull that water out of the stream and put it to a beneficial use. Otherwise, somebody's going to take it. So in order to maintain that right, well, it seems like it would be encouraging waste. It was originally predicated on encouraging use and developing the West, but that's not an issue anymore. The West is fairly developed and, and we actually have far less water than than there's demand for, and so it's a it's an antiquated provision, um, but it was in, it, it was it, it has effectively in recent years, especially, resulted in encouraging waste, discouraging water conservation, and and or at the very least, putting water to uses that you might not otherwise put uh, that volume of water to to exactly. as a use. As a, an, an economist might say, it's an inefficient allocation of water. What, what normal human beings would say is that it's a waste of water, that people are using and diverting water in order to maintain their right, even though it has a higher valued use to someone else. Okay, so what's the law now? Well, the, the, the kind of big innovation was to allow for water rights to be left in stream, water to be left in stream for environmental flows, for fish wildlife habitat. That was added as to the list of beneficial uses. And it sounds pretty subtle. It sounds even kind of, you know, um, fairly uh, discreet change. But what it did was it allowed conservation groups to cooperate with these irrigators and say, instead of, you know, suing them to keep water in stream for fish or for wildlife, they could go to the negotiating table and say, could I lease this water from you on a short-term basis so that you're not just diverting it for the sake of maintaining your right, but rather we have a mutually beneficial agreement where the water stays in stream during dry periods so that fish 
aren't left in dewatered streams and, and don't and don't die off from from a lack of water. All right. So is that that the, that's the case today? That is the case today. And there's there's a fairly robust, and it depends on each state, but there's a fairly robust set of trading that goes on between these two different groups, between the irrigators on one hand who have the old, you know, high priority water rights, and the conservation groups who want to acquire that water for fish and wildlife. That's a that's an example of a success story. So it's a water market that's actually allowing these otherwise competing groups to cooperate and negotiate. We call that a perk. We call that free market environmentalism. So what are the next steps in terms of uh, empowering this kind of cooperation? Well, in the, in the water context, um, the biggest thing is to clarify who owns what rights and to allow those transfers to happen more quickly. A lot of times states actually have a very thorough review process, and there's good reason for that. They want to make sure that what people are selling, they've actually got a right to. But improving that, um, reducing what we call the transaction cost of trading water is a big part of that. But the, the lesson from water can be applied to a number of other resources, whether we're talking about timber, whether we're talking about rangelands, grasslands, allowing these old west demands like grazing and irrigation and timber harvesting to negotiate with these new west demands like recreational hiking, biking, fishing. If we if we look at our, our current rules, our current laws in the west that govern resource use, and we allow for those competing demands to negotiate and cooperate rather than litigate, we think it's going to actually be good for the environment and good for these communities. I think people are more in general are accustomed to when they think about property rights in uh, land, in noise, in water, they think of it as either I own it or you own it or the government owns it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, it's not very easy to separate out having a property in something uh, from owning something outright and in its entirety and it's mine. Yeah. You know, in, in most of these cases, actually, um, ownership is, fa- is fairly clear. And in a lot of cases, we're talking about being in public lands, the, the, the federal government owns um, the property itself, but there are use rights associated with that. So for example, take any, you know, for, National Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management land, that title is held by the federal government, but there are grazing rights that may go back a century, right? So there's there's fairly good clarity on who owns the rights and who can use the resource. What what we're focused on at Perk is, can we make those rights transferable? Can we remove the barriers that allow these competing user groups to negotiate? And for example, allow a, a wildlife conservation group to negotiate and acquire grazing rights and not put any cows out there. Let wildlife graze that those those lands. Those there are a number of restrictions on the transferability of these rights, which we think are are entrenching these conflicts and making these resources a source of acrimony rather than 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 cooperation. Are there groups that are simply not interested in uh, making those rights transferable? Uh, and what I'm thinking of is a group that uh, simply opposes uh, the kinds of what are called consumptive uses, and we need a better term than that, of, of, of land, of streams, and that sort of thing. Of course. I mean, there's, there are certainly, um, I would call them preservationist, you know, environmental groups who are using laws like the Endangered Species Act, like the Clean Water Act, to control land use, to control, to control resource use without having to pay 
for that, that kind of management. But if you, if you're a serious conservationist and you look at it from a cost benefit perspective, you can actually achieve better conservation outcomes by pulling out your wallet and acquiring those rights and acquiring those resources rather than litigating in court for years and years. You know, there's always going to be, you know, the, the groups like the Center for Biological Diversity, which are using the Endangered Species Act as a tool for controlling land use, not actually using it as a tool for conserving wildlife. You know, we may not be able to affect those groups are always going to be out there, but can we give them less of a legal stand to um, a legal argument to stand on and allow the real conservation groups to cooperate with resource owners and resource users? Uh, I spoke with your colleague, Holly Fretwell, uh, some time ago, I think it was about a year ago, and we talked about the extent to which uh, environmental groups are essentially paid by the federal government to engage in lawsuits. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting incentive. I mean, there are some there are some groups who that is their that is their um, primary economic model: sue the federal government, and then recoup uh, what was called Equal Access to Justice Act payments. Um, you know, we we obviously don't want to discourage individual plaintiffs from suing the federal government. In fact, we want we want the government to be accountable, and litigation is a meaningful source of that. But when you're looking at groups whose you know whole existence is based on, you know, suing over the Endangered Species Act and 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 not actually uh, conserving any species, I think there's there's some reforms that are necessary there. Reed Watson is president of the Property and Environment Research Center. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 